The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. Hello, you're listening to The Views Room, brought to you from the staff of Breaking Views. I'm Jennifer Saba, and I'm joined by my colleagues, Anna Shemansky. Hello, Anna. Hello. And John Foley. Cheerio, John. Cheerio means goodbye. How d- <laughs> <laughs> Hello. But thanks for trying to make me feel at home. <laughs> so this week, we'll be gabbing about McDonald's and how its decision to boot its CEO is tied to the Me Too movement, Japan's love of hard cash, and this week, we're going to unveil a new segment where our colleagues are going to tell you the latest about Aramco and Fiat Chrysler's merger with Peugeot in under two minutes. But first, McDonald's. Earlier this week, the board fired Chief Executive Steve Easterbrook for having a consensual relationship with an employee. Under his leadership since 2015, the stock had doubled, but Easterbrook had violated the company-wide policy of basically you cannot... Uh, have a relationship uh, with a direct or indirect report, and that is for pretty much anybody across the board. And so this news comes out, and it was interesting in that it seems like the board took action pretty quickly, and they were pretty decisive. But among breaking views, there is some heated debate about this, don't you think? So, Anna, I'll start with you. Yeah. Do you think it was right for McDonald's to do this? So, because they had a policy, I understand saying he they had a policy, he broke the policy, he was fired. Okay, that I get. Yeah. I think the other question is, does this policy really make sense? Yeah. And I'm not 100% sure. Like, I get it from, like, if I were running HR, I would have this policy, right? Because it's clean, it's easy. Yeah. But as a human who works with other humans... I also feel like it's it's a when you're talking about consensual relationships between adults, it gets a, a little bit more complicated. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I sort of had mixed feelings about that too, John. What do you? Think? I mean, he's not the first CEO to go for this reason, right? For this kind of consensual relationship with an an employee or even a colleague. We had the guy who ran Intel who um, resigned for similar reasons last year. Um, uh, Brian Krasanich. Um but it also I was looking back through the annals of CEO um, ignominy and even like Boeing in 2005 lost a CEO for a similar reason um, there's kind of a long history of companies saying you cannot have relationships with people that you work with and I, and I actually think I, I agree with you Anna in the sense that if the rule is clear what you want to see is that whatever rule it is whether it's smart or not is carried out without favor and everyone is everyone has a responsibility to meet it so so I mean, yes, people are humans, but like the, there are so many fish in the sea. I mean, like you're the CEO of a company. Can you not find someone else to fall in it's love true, with? It's true. Although if you're the CEO of a company, like you're, you're probably kind of married to your company. So you're, you're probably not seeing many people outside of your company. Well, maybe that's maybe it's a work-life balance. Exactly. That, that's really what this boils down to. I did. To. I was like, uh, I found something quite interesting on my travels, though, which was that obviously companies have been wrestling with this for a long time. And there is, a, there is one apparently solution to this whole question of whether you should let people have relationships with their employees. And that is the love contract. What is that? So, and the noise animated suggests that she's familiar <laughs> I think with I know what you're love contract. So it's, it was created by this lawyer called Jeff Tannenbaum about 20, 25 years ago. And it's the idea that if you're in a relationship with a colleague, you both sign a contract 
um, that the company holds onto that says that you both consensually entered into that and you still abide by the sexual harassment rules and so on. And, and it happens to be a contract that was um, featured in an episode of Ally McBeal in the 1990s. <laughs> Along with the dancing baby. <laughs> Along with the dancing baby. Okay, so what I was thinking is that I won't name the banks, but I, I have friends who were at certain investment banks and they had policies that if employees started a relationship with, with each other, they had to tell HR. So it became this question of how serious the relationship was of when you had to go tell HR. Like that was the conversation of like, ooh, is it serious enough to tell HR? Right, like is it the first date? Exactly, you're going to tell, no. Yeah, so. and then you, then you have to right. explain it. Well, I have to say that this piece of news brought me joy in another way, which is it's a CEO and finally I feel like they, there's some comeuppance for CEOs, just kind of more broadly, because everybody seems to worship these CEOs, mostly men. Maybe it was punitive, but this is the guy at the very top. And he, like, okay, it's consensual, but at the same time, like, can you imagine, like, what people are saying, like, oh, like, okay, there's favoritism and, you know, and et cetera, et cetera. Like, it, you just can see how down the road this could be a huge problem. And he is at the, at the very top. In some ways, I think that this is kind of a, a, a good message, and particularly with McDonald's, which has had some real issues with the Me Too movement. Yeah, I mean, I think... It's definitely good to see that, you know, you have a CEO who is actually a really good CEO, clearly. Like, and I mean, not outside of, I don't know exactly what happened with this relationship, but I mean, right, in terms of right. the performance caveat. of the company. We have to caveat. Right, exactly. Who knows what's going to happen? I have no out. idea. Exactly. <laughs> I don't know. Stuff. Um, but, you know, he clearly was a successful CEO at McDonald's. And yet very quickly they said, OK, this is, you know, this is unacceptable. And I think... To me, I hope that then what that means is that when you actually go down to the franchise level, where women who are really vulnerable, yes, right. women and men who are really vulnerable, will be will have you know a sense uh, the idea that they can come forward and that the company will support them. Because to me, like that's actually kind of the bigger issue. Right, right. And there've been a lot of companies that have. Um, have had problems with it, even in McDonald's kind of industry, roughly speaking. I mean, Nike is another consumer goods company that had mm -hmm. a, basically a huge clear out right last year because they had a, a very toxic culture. Yeah. It, uh, women were claim, claiming they'd been harassed, and that ended up with men and women at a senior level having to leave the company. Like, you want to root out that toxic culture, and that starts with the CEO. So, so again, yeah, I agree that the McDonald's, this sends, I mean, in a sense, this sends a message that, that what applies to the top should apply to all layers of the company. That said, we've seen other examples of companies where the CEO, because the CEO is being scrutinized by everybody, has to adhere to a certain kind of behavior, but that doesn't necessarily filter through to the, you know, to the shop floor or to the factory floor. Remember the, the allegations at Ford about some of the behavior that was happening on their production line? Yeah. Yeah. And I guess that would be the, the opposite of what, what I just said would be the fear of that. Exactly right. That you make a big statement with your CEO, but then you don't do anything with your franchises, then that is kind of not a good result. Well, and I think one solution to that is to tie executive compensation to um, sexual harassment claims in some ways. Because l let's face it, CEOs are just, uh, they're getting piles and piles of money and it's just an absurd amount. And, you know, Easterbrook, he's last year he made like almost $16 million in his comp package, which is it's an obscene amount of money, really, for and particularly if you look at people who work, you know, who are flipping burgers. Right. And the McDonald's. multiple of CEO salary yeah. to me. It's true, income. although the only thing, and I am not defending, if you look at how much the stock, like the value of the company that in theory he has helped generate from what he has done at that company, and you look at that in relation to how much he's been paid, it doesn't look quite as obscene. 
I'm just saying, like, when you're talking about CEOs, I think there's often the CEOs kind of compared to your normal everyday workers. And I understand that. But I also feel like as a CEO, you have the ability to affect the overall value of a company in a way that most other workers don't. So I just think in discussions about CEO pay in kind of this day and age, that's something that someone has to be considered. I actually disagree with that. I think tying um, the stock price and the market value of a company to an executive is is gotten out of control because there's there are a million ways you can game the system. You can buy back shares. You can do all these things, financial engineering that really doesn't speak to the health of the company. And it shortchanges the people who are actually doing the work in the company, which is the employees. But that brings like the, the, one of the things that strikes me about this whole situation is that it reminds you of this the difference between a kind of good CEO in the eyes of investors versus a good CEO in the eyes of the people who work for them. And, and McDonald's is actually a really good test case for this because you've got a company where the CEO has been really good, as you said, Anna, in terms of creating value for shareholders. But the, the behavior he was engaging in may not have actually been very good for some of the people who worked around him or the company under the company's policies, they decided that was the case. So you've got a CEO who's out, whose shareholders might say, actually, we don't want, we don't necessarily want him out because he's doing a good job as far as we can tell. And the shares were down by, I think it was about a billion and a half, two billion, maybe knocked off McDonald's market value yesterday. But his responsibility is also to his employees. And and this is actually kind of a good sign because it means that McDonald's is looking not just at what he does for shareholders, but the value that he creates for the people who work around him and whether he's putting employee, you know, treating employees and colleagues as stakeholders, which, you know, he wasn't yeah, under their I, own judgment. I agree. And I think, you know, while you know, tying CEO compensation to different performance metrics, I think, has both good and bad sides. I think what may make more sense going forward, and I'm obviously not the first person to say this, is to be tying it more towards kind of a longer term performance, right? So because, yes, it is obviously true that you can game the system in different ways. But, you know, if you can, I do think that if it were tied to a kind of longer benchmark, you could maybe mitigate a little bit of that. So let's talk about his um, package that he walked away with. Um, do you think if that he was paid was 26 weeks of salary, I believe? So do you think that's fair? Do you think that he should have been outright fired without any kind of compensation? Or do you think he deserves some of this? So part- by deserves, I mean the money. Yeah. So I guess I have mixed feelings about this partly because I don't know exactly what happened in the relationship. But let's say that it was a completely consensual relationship, you know, if if that is the case. And if the policy simply says that you have to be let go and it doesn't stipulate what that means, then honestly, I don't think it's that unfair for a CEO who has at the company done a pretty good job to be compensated for that. Now, again, I'm not saying that doesn't mean that the you know, the employee shouldn't be paid more and all of that like that. That's a whole other separate issue. But in this particular issue, it would be if it, if this were an issue of harassment, to me, that's completely different. Like Anna says, it depends on the situations that we don't know much about. But but other other cases like the Boeing case in 2005, this guy, Harry Stone Cipher, I mean, he left with a, you know, the standard retirement package, but he hadn't, you know, at the time the company said he hadn't helped the employee he was having a relationship with, he hadn't discriminated against anyone else, that it was all just, you know, it, it came, he hadn't fiddled his accounts. So you have degrees of badness, if you like, right, within the right. spectrum. And I think if he's, if it's just come out and he, they've quickly moved and he said, fair enough, you know, this is against the policy, I'm going to go quietly, I haven't, no one has been hurt, no one has been obviously hurt. 
I don't think shareholders are going to particularly, I don't think I would particularly begrudge as a colleague him getting the usual retirement package. I mean, you may begrudge what that retirement package is, but that's some Right, that's, that's, a an, that's another that's subject issue, for, yeah. another, um, for another views room. All right, well, we'll leave it there. Thank you, John. Thank you, Anna. Okay, now we're going to discuss Saudi Arabia's Aramco and its efforts to take this giant oil company public. We have on the horn uh, from London, George Hay. Welcome, George. Got it. So you are going to be one of our first um, tests to try a new experiment, if you will, where we're going to try and see if you can explain to us in about a minute or so what is important about the news this week that Saudi Aramco is finally moving towards its IPO? What's happening? Okay, well, that's a good question because um, this has been going on for like three years. But uh, the key difference, um, what happened last Sunday, was that Aramco moved from the phase of just um, idly thinking about uh, listing this massive um, uh, oil giant to actually say, putting out their intention to float and saying, right, this is happening, we're going to do it in, you know, say in a month and a half or so, our shares are going to be trading uh, on the Saudi stock exchange. So that's a major step forward. Um, and that's all um, uh, well and good. But the fact that, despite the fact they've, they've kind of um, actually managed to kind of jump that hurdle, uh, doesn't detract from the fact that the same old fundamental issues still um, persist, i.e. how much is this company actually going to be worth and where are they going to list the stock? Uh, the answer to the, to the first question, we will know really really pretty soon because they will have to give a, a pricing range probably within the next uh, week and a half, say. Um, and But, but the, the, the interesting thing about the whole process is despite it's been going on for so, so long, um, people really don't know where it's going to end up. Uh, we don't know whether it's going to be uh, the $2 trillion valuation that the Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman uh, notoriously wants, or whether it's going to be really quite a lot less than that, around 1.2, 1.3 even, um, uh, and which would still be obviously a massive, uh, massive IPO and the, the biggest one we've probably ever seen. But... Um, it would be a rather different uh, kettle of fish than what he uh, originally intended. So now we're going to move to the world of auto mergers. And we have Lisa Yucca in the Milan Reuters newsroom. Hi, Lisa. Hello. Hi. So I would like you to tell us in, again, about a minute... What is going on with Fiat, Chrysler, and Peugeot? So why are these guys merging and why should we care? So Fiat, Chrysler, Automobile, and Peugeot announced last week on October 31st that they were going to form a merger of equals to create the world's fourth largest car maker. Now, in reality, this is not a merger of equals, but it is a, a takeover by Peugeot or Fiat Chrysler. Um, you know, and this is kind of, you know, quite evident if you do the math. I mean, you realize that there is a transfer of value of more than three billion for Peugeot to Fiat. Now, I mean, why, why is it that, you know, Peugeot is so interested in marrying Fiat? Um, the, the, the situation, I mean, is, is quite clear. I mean, Peugeot is run by a fantastic CEO. 
CEO called Carlos Tavares, who's done an amazing job in terms of improving margins for a car maker that, quite frankly, is exposed to just Europe, which is not a great market for, for car makers, and also you know, tends to mostly sell small cars, so, you know, with low margin. And despite these challenges, he's done an amazing job. But, you know, now he's kind of run out of gas, so he needs another avenue. And Fiat is providing that because, as you know, Fiat owns the Jeep and Ram brands, and they're doing amazingly well in the U.S. So by tying the two together, I mean, there is the hope that they can save costs probably in Europe and at the same time uh, expand, you know, on the global scale. So I'm here with Pete Sweeney. We're going to talk a little bit about Japan's cash addiction. So incredibly, four out of five transactions in Japan are still made with cash. Pete, what's the holdup here? Well, yeah, I mean, it's interesting because most people associate Japan with, you know, these futuristic um, high-tech society, and it is in a lot of ways. But what is interesting about it is how much Japan loves paper money. Like, I think it's Japan, Switzerland, and Hong Kong are, like, up there in terms of, like, the cash supply per, per person. Um, there's a couple of reasons behind it. A couple of them are positive. Obviously, Japan has a relatively low crime rate, so it's not considered that dangerous to lock up money inside your house. You know, there's also a relatively low counterfeiting rate as well, so people aren't worried about getting ripped off by receiving cash. Um, both of those forces, of course, drive the move to cash assistance to other societies, and especially in China, you know, where counterfeiting is, is so intense that the government has never rolled out like a 500 renminbi bill for fear that it would become this target. So um, there's, there's plenty of downsides, however. And now the Japanese government is trying to double the number of digital payments. Yeah, well, I mean, just in part because of the downsides, right? I mean, like dealing with, with paper money has, has several problems. For one thing, you know, you have to pay people to deal with it. Um, you have to, a merchant has to spend time accepting it, counting it, shipping it to the banks. You know, there's a cost of printing it and distributing it and destroying it. You know, it's hard. It's it's anonymous in a way. You can hand it to somebody. There's no kind of like trail for handing somebody unmarked notes as they do in the in the gangster movies, right? And it also, and there's another thing is some central banks want to go cashless in a way because it, it makes it easier to transmit their interest rate decisions. Obviously, in, in Japan, it's interesting because Japan is running negative interest rates on the central bank level, at least. Um, you know, and that's intended to get people to stop saving cash and invest it instead. But of course, you know, if you if you take your cash out of the bank and put it under your mattress, you know, your money isn't getting eroded. Nothing is happening to it because the negative interest rates don't apply. Um, so for all those reasons and, and just maybe sheer embarrassment at how behind it is, the government is making this push. But it might be a little bit tricky. Great. And, and how is the government trying to change things? Okay, for starters, in my personal opinion, they're not really trying hard enough just yet. You know, there's a lot of entrenched resistance um, to switching over, which we can see in Hong Kong here with, like, say, the, the, the taxi cabs still refuse to do with anything with cash. You know, people get used to doing things. You have to really lean on them. I mean, so a lot of, a lot of the issue in, in, in Japan is, you know, this is the aging society. They've got, like, 35 million people over, over the age of, of 65, I think, and that's nearly a third of the population, and they're fairly set in their ways. You know, you've got all these small, petty merchants that don't want to, you know, pay the transaction fees. You know, they're not really calculating the cost it spends. They spend, you know, the labor cost they spend dealing with cash, but they look at like the 3% hit or whatever they take on a transaction over a debit card or whatever, and they get cranky. Um, so all those people will take some persuading. The government has made a tweak to its consumption tax. So it just cranked up 
its consumption tax from 8% to 10% in October. That was quite controversial because the Japanese economy is not doing that well. But it threw in all these kind of caveats, one of which was you can get a rebate if you do a cashless transaction with small merchants, which is very, very targeted. And it's supposed to be encouraging people, you know, basically encourage the small merchants to start accepting cards and start encouraging ordinary shoppers to go to small merchants that accept cards because you get like a 2% discount or the equivalent thereof. Um, but that's not really going that far given, given the entrenchedness of it. And what's the hurry? I mean, is this really such a big deal? Well, yeah, so there is the kind of evangelical tech junkie thing that you have to be wary of, right? Like, oh, well, you know, China's cashless and or going cashless and Sweden and these are all great. And you have all these evangelists for their their pet technology um, talking about how great it's going to be. I mean, I, there was an interesting study by um, Visa and Rubini Thought Lab that kind of estimated this huge economic yield um, potentially from going cashless, which translated into innovation in fintech companies, you know, just increased worker productivity. And the numbers were quite high. They looked at like Tokyo and Osaka and concluded that the immediate benefit would be equivalent to about $70 billion. I think that's 3% of the those cities' GDP. And then there'd be a permanent boosts to GDP growth rates, maybe 30 basis points, something like that. Nothing incredible, but, but you know, over time adds up. Um, on the other hand, like, yeah, like you said, Japan doesn't look broken, right? I mean, like, you, you don't have the counterfeiting problem. You don't have the theft problem. Um, cash is working okay. They've certainly got other issues that they need to address. And, um, you know, the, the yield from it might be exaggerated by people, you know, obviously, a study sponsored by Visa. Visa has an interest in, in cashlessness. So we will see, you know, how fast the government goes. But if it's Japan, you've got this aging conservative society I think however hard they push, progress is likely not to be as fast as, as people hope. That's great. Thank you so much, Pete. Well, that's our show for this week. I would like to thank our guests, John Foley, George Hay, Alec McFarlane, Lisa Yuka, and Pete Sweeney. And hats off, as always, to our producers, Andrew D'Antonio, Laura Browner, and Freddie Joyner. Our final thanks go to you, our listeners, for tuning in. Subscribe to The Views Room and our sister podcast, The Exchange, on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you go to get your podcast fix. And check us out every day at breakingviews.com. And don't forget to tune in next week for another edition.